You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. With that, we're going to start today's class. We are now in our final class, sixth and final lesson of My God. And I hope you all had a wonderful time while we were in, this piece, in these past, last past five lessons that we've spoken about our relationship with God, questions, debates, and discussions that we had addressing different parts of our relationship with God. Today, we're going to talk about four different, question, four different questions, not in any specific area per se, random questions, if I would call it that, and random as looking at some from a theoretical, theological, and also personal type of questions that we have concerning our relationship with God. The first question we're going to be talking about today is, why can't we see God? Our second question is, can we reconcile God with science? Our third question is going to be, why is Judaism so obsessed with idolatry? Is God jealous? And our fourth question is, I am a spiritual person. Why do I need to follow the Torah system to have a relationship with God? So those are our four questions for today. Let's get going with our first question for today. Our first question is, why can't we see God? And if you look at the question, the question itself is probably pretty straightforward, self-explanatory. As they say, seeing is believing. And maybe if we would see God, we wouldn't have any more questions. Here, you can come up here. Funny, please. Oh, is seeing is believing. Is that the usual saying? And if God wants us to believe in Him, wouldn't He make it that we should be able to see Him? Isn't that the simplest way for God to make Himself available? And if we see Him, everybody would believe probably. And that would probably be the easiest way. If God makes Himself visible to us, human beings, we would probably not have any questions. But you know what? Let's take the question and let's go a step further. Let's say you see God. Let's say I can get all the power that I can and all the mystical rabbinical powers that are there and I grant you your wish. I have a question for you. What do you think God's going to look like? The most beautiful thing you've ever seen. How do you know it will be the most beautiful thing? Maybe you'll see other things afterwards. You know what you're going to see in the future? What's God going to look like? You want to see God, Right? Let's say, imagine I got, and I say, okay, great. You're going to be able to see God. What do you think he looks like? Energy. Huh? What exactly are you imagining, hoping to see? How do you see energy? See light? Look in the sun. So look in the sun. So on a basic level, you answer the question yourself. I can't see God. Why can't I see God? Because God doesn't have a body. He's not physical. He's not three-dimensional. Look at the words as Maimonides articulates. What does it mean? What does it mean, God? Text number one, page 173. The third principle is the negation of God's possessing corporeality. We believe that the one God of whom we speak is neither a body nor a body, bodily faculty. All activity that transpires within a body, such as motion, rest, or lodging, does not relate to him. Neither him, neither his essence, nor in his doings. So simply put, the human being has certain things that the eye simply can't see. Can you see smell? Can you see feelings? Can you see anger? Can you see mathematical theories? The very famous uh, 
joke that I like to say you know, about this the professor that stood up in front of his class and said, today I'm going to prove to you that God doesn't exist. And he says, how am I going to prove it to you? Look, does anybody see God? Does anybody feel God? Can anybody touch God? Proof, God doesn't exist. All of a sudden from the back of the class, little Yankel picks up his head and says, Professor, can I ask that class a question? And he says, sure. He says, did anybody see the professor's brains? No. Can anybody touch it? No. Can anybody feel it? No. Proof, it doesn't exist. <laughs> Bottom line is, there are certain things in life that we just can't see. We are three-dimensional people. We see things in three dimensions, in 3D. God is not 3D. God can't be sensed in physical senses. Not only that, if we did see God with our own eyes, we'd immediately say, that's not God. Why? Because God is not something that can be seen. Put it the way somebody, a professor, his name is Irving Block, says it in this way. Text number 2, page 174. There are some philosophers, such as N.R.A. Hansen, who argued, as a matter of fact, there is a present, there is at present no such evidence for God, but there might be at some point in the future. What would such evidence look like? Hansen describes it for us. The heavens open, the clouds pull apart, revealing an unbelievable, immense, and radiant Zeus, like figure towering upon us, and a like hundred of Everest. He frowned darkly as the lightning play across the features of Michelangelo's face. He then points down at me and exclaims, for every man, woman, and child to hear, I've had quiet enough of you two clever log lo logic chopping and word watching in matters of theology. Be assured, in our Hansen, that I most certainly exist. Nor and this is what he says. The first question one has to ask is if God himself, if this would deny the basic thesis of monotheism, that God is not finite, figure that is visible form, nor no one is raised in this tradition of the Bible, would ever suppose that a Zeus-like figure could be a manifestation of God, much less God himself. An ancient Greek might, but Hansen was not addressing himself to an audience of ancient Greeks. He was speaking to the modern man, and this man, be the atheist, theistist or atheist, if he looked up to the sky and saw Hansen's Zeus-like figure, would first all be frightened out of his wits. Secondly, he might think Earth was being invaded by outer space creatures. If this figure proclaimed that he was God, only an immicable would believe it. Probably the last thing one would think that that's the manifestation of God. As you can see from this professor, as he puts it, put any image you want, any figure you want, the first thing you're going to say, it's not God. Somebody's pulling my leg. So that seems pretty outright. Okay, I can't see God. God's not 3D. We can see things in 3D. So God simply doesn't have a body or a physical, so therefore, okay, answer is closed. Let's move on to the next question. Let's move on. But the problem is, why do we ask the question? Is because it's not that simple. The word seeing, if you look in the dictionary, the word see doesn't always mean to see it with a physical naked eye. The word see can be, as you can see according to the dictionary, is either to perceive by the eye or to perceive and detect by sight. What you see from over here is when somebody tells you, you know, tells you a good theory and say, I see where you're coming from. Did you literally see where they're coming from? No, you understand the logic that they're explaining to you. You perceive what they're saying. When you're answering that you see something, not necessarily does seeing have to be a physical item. I can talk about seeing as in perception. 
Why then can't we see God in a way of perception? The question we can say is that instead of saying, let me see God in the physical and naked way, let me see God in the perceptive way, in the perceptive type of way. And I'll tell you even more so. The reason is because plenty of people have seen God that way. Starting with the people who crossed the sea. We say it in our daily prayers, this is God and I will glorify him. Why do I say that? Because this, when we say this, that means they were pointing at something. That means they saw God in whatever shape or form you want to call seeing means. They perceived God. The people of Mount Sinai saw God. Let's see it in text number 3a. A human king arrives in a province accompanied by his inner circle, warriors riding on his side, and is preceded and followed by legions of soldiers. Yet because he is human, like all others, everyone asks, which one is the king? However, when God was revealed by the Red Sea, there was no need for anyone to ask which one is the king. When they saw him, they recognized him. They all proclaimed, this is my God and I will glorify him. Just a few weeks later, they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. And in the book of Exodus, Moses tells the Jewish people, text number 3b, God said to Moses, tell the children of Israel, you have seen that I have spoken with you from the heavens. So did the Jewish people see God? Then why can't we see God the way they saw him then? Not only that, we continue to know, as we spoke about many weeks ago, a few weeks ago, I should say, they were prophets. What did prophets do? How did they understand God? They saw God. Did they see a physical image? They perceived God. They were possessed, if you want to call it, with a godly divine intuition that they were then able to then pass it on to the next generation. Yes, and the only one that was able to see it, so to speak, eye to eye, was Moses because he was above and beyond all other prophets. As we can see, as the Alter Rebbe tells us in text number 4, Moses and the other prophets apprehended God with what scripture refers to actual vision. You shall see my back and I saw God and I give God appear to Abraham. Now clearly the expression of seeing is meant in a metaphorical sense and does not refer to the literal sight by the physical eye. But nevertheless, the analog needs to resemble the analogy. Prophetic vision must be a form of grasping essence of a certain spiritual reality as sight enables us to see the essence of the physical thing. Thus, Unclus translates Abraham's account or mentioned that God became revealed to him, meaning the God who is hidden became manifest and revealed to Abraham. What we see from these verses and throughout the Torah, we have a terminology, Vayera Allah, and God revealed himself, and God has made himself seen to him. So can we see God or can't we see God? And if God was able to reveal himself to Abraham, why can't all of us? see, perceive God in some shape or form. We can recognize the presence of God without actually seeing without the... But there's recognizing the presence. That means you are feeling, so to speak, in a spiritual height. But that's not what the Torah says. The Torah says that the Jewish people, undeniable, all of them standing at Mount Sinai, didn't just recognize that that was in the holy temple they recognized the presence of God. They went into an holy place. But over here we see that there were individuals that God was revealed to them to an extent of certainty. There was nobody denying it. 
How do we know today that the Jewish people saw it? Because there were 3 million people standing at Mount Sinai and they all had the same revelation. So they saw something which not just a sense, there was some type of revelation that was there to the naked eye that they were able to do. So the question again is, why can't we perceive God the way the Jews saw it then? And as in good Jewish tradition, we'll answer the question with a question. Let's say you'll be able to perceive God. Why do you want to see God? Why? Anybody? Why do you want to see God? You want to ask God questions. Okay. That's a good reason. Very good. Proof. So you want to see God. If I see God, most times people will say, I want proof. God exists. There's so many atheists, agnostics out there. The world is full of people that question God's true identity. I want to be able to know it's tachlis, that he exists, that it's true. Finally, I'll have that revelation, undeniable, it'll all be great. And then you go tell people. The problem is, the problem is, historically, the Jewish people who saw God twice by the crossing of the Red Sea, by the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai, not even 40 days later, they were serving a golden calf. Not good that it helped them, right? They had all the proof in the world. They saw God in the greatest revelation. What went wrong? What happened? These same people who all of a sudden saw God in the most man- greatest manifestation, the greatest revelation, all of a sudden, boom, 40 days later, they're serving idols. Because just because I see something doesn't demand compliance. Doesn't guarantee belief. You know the story of the guy on the, on the, on the train and it says he's smoking while he's on the train. So somebody tells him, don't you see the sign that says no smoking? Why don't you listen to the sign? So the guy tells him, it says over there, it says, you see the sign, it says, buy diapers. Do you buy diapers? Every sign you listen to. Just because I see it doesn't mean that I listen to it. How many times do you see something and you just walk right past it? Just because I see something doesn't mean it's compliant. Doesn't mean that the person's listening to it. Huh? No. You could get, yeah, but you'll be scared of it the first time. And after the second time, you'll get accustomed to You see, it's not so bad. You won't be scared from it. Like the Jewish people, maybe they were in awe the first time they saw God by the crossing of the sea. They were in awe by it came to Mount Sinai. They were scared. They only wanted to hear the first two commandments. But all of a sudden, it didn't change them. Why didn't it change them? Because when God revealed himself to the Jewish people, as overwhelming as the experience was, as passionate as the Jewish people were at the time, it didn't change them. And the reason is because when something happens from above, when you're just seeing something and shown something and you did not do anything for it, it's not going to change you. Imagine the sun is shining brilliantly through your home. Your house is full of light. But what happens as soon as sunset comes? It gets dark. Why? Because you did nothing to be able to get the sun into the house. All you did was open the window shade. But if you were to pull the electric and put in a wire and put in a bulb, what did you do now? You created something. You made something. 
And that gives you the opportunity to enjoy it more. Real change only happens when you do it on your own, when it comes from within. Change by definition cannot be imposed or forced upon a person. Change by definition will not work if it's forced upon any person. And for that reason, when we talk about a relationship with God, our relationship with God has to be number one from within us in order for us to change it. Because if it's coming from on the outside, it won't really change us. As we can see in text number 5a, the previous Rebbe puts it this way. There is a profound advantage to a spiritual revelation that is earned through a personal's effort. A. The enlightenment is tailored to the subjective's ability and standing. And B. Reward is not the bread of embarrassment, a handout, rather it's earned. Additionally, effort that is done in the toil of a fashion, the person into the fitting container for the light. Once the person is a container, the revelation fully integrates into the person's personality. It resonates with the person and becomes one with them. When I try to fit something into a box, what happens? Either the box rips, or it's too loose, and it falls out. But if I build the box around the item that I need, it's going to be perfectly snug. The same idea is also when we talk about when the revelations from above. The Jewish people saw God at Mount Sinai. It was like the sun was shining at them, but did they change? No, they were in a high. They felt God. But they did not change. They did not do anything to be able to receive that change. And because of that, the change wasn't internal. It was only external. And the moment they were no longer under that aura, under that spell, if you want to call it, of the divine reality that they experienced, all of a sudden they went haywire and they started looking for something else. There's a fascinating story told about the fifth Chabad Rebbe when he was a young child, came into his grandfather. He was about five years old. He just finished learning in the book of Genesis about the story of Abraham, how God came to Abraham and revealed himself to Abraham. And he came to his father, grandfather crying and he said, it's not fear. Why is it that God revealed himself to Abraham, but he won't reveal himself to me? And his grandfather answered him and said, When a Yid when a Jew who's a righteous person, is 99 years old and decides to circumcise himself, he is deserving that God should reveal himself. What was, the, uh, what was the, his grandfather answering him? Abraham didn't just say, I want to see God. He worked for 99 years as a righteous individual. He changed himself so that revelation would be something of eternity. But at the same time, what is the story teaching us? That we can't be complacent. We have to demand and cry and weep that a person who says, I don't want to see God, he's got a problem too. We have to ask. We have to cry. We have to ask and say, I want to be, see that broad revelation. But you've got to do something about it. As we see in text number 5b, we must serve God by our own efforts. Our service is, is higher when we are led by the hand from above, but it is more precious when it is generated by our own efforts. This is why God generally does not allow himself to be seen. Because it wouldn't be that useful. If God would allow himself to be seen, then how would it change? How would we change? We'll just have to keep on depending on this divine inspiration. And as long as I'm getting that 
blowing that whatever it may be, I'll behave. I won't do anything on my own. Because God wants us to do things on our own. God wants us to be able to work on our own. And because of this, God gives us the ability and gives us that strength and says, here, you go ahead and do it. And ultimately, when we work on our own, to be able to enjoy that inspiration, that's what happens. So if we come back to our original question, what was then, if I ask you then, what was the point of the revelation? If so, why did God even reveal himself on Mount Sinai? Why did God even show himself to the Jewish people on the Red Sea? What was the point of it? If the whole point is that we should work on our own to achieve the revelation, why did God do it? Because the only way you can work on something is if you get a taste of it. If I have no clue, if you get a taste of it, if you get no clue what it is, why should I work on it? So what does God have to do? He showers us with something. He shows us the great light. He shows, he reveals himself to the Jewish people once. Every single Jew is by Mount Sinai saw the great revelation of godliness. There are prophets that see the revelation. So we know it exists out there. We know what to cry for. We know what to ask for. We know what to change the world for. But eventually, so what's the point of all of it? Is that eventually, God wants to give us that head start. And when we have that head start, is that throughout the days of exile, we are working on that moment to bring about the ultimate divine revelation. As the prophet Isaiah tells us in text number 6, the glory of God will be revealed and together all humanity will see the mouth that has spoken. That eventually there will come a time where A, we will see God and simultaneously not only we will see God, but that seeing God will come because of our work. All these years in exile, what are we working for? Why are we doing mitzvahs? What are we working for? So that eventually the world will be a place that will be able to see God in a revealed way and will be able to stay here. That's why when Mashiach comes, the world will be a place of absolute spirituality for eternity because it's not going to be a divine thrust upon us. It's going to be something that we worked for all these years, changing the world, making this world a spiritual place, developing ourselves into beings that are able and capable of enjoying the divine energy in an eternal way. So to ask, so, so to answer our question, why can't we see God? God can't be seen because he wants us to find him. Let's go now to our second question. Can we reconcile God with signs? So, there was this uh, God is sitting up in heaven and a sign to say to him, God, listen here, your job is done. We worked it all out. We know how to do everything today. We can make our own meat. We can make our own humans. We can make our own animals. You can go now retire. Everything's okay. God says, oh, really? That's wonderful. So the scientist says, look, I can take earth and I will form a human. God says, no, 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 no. Go get your own earth. What does it mean? You know, there's a perceived understanding that between science and religion, there's this great divide. That either you're religious or you believe in science. And the question by many, especially science-thinking people, we're not over here reconciling all the different questions about the age of the universe and what moon, stars, we're talking about in general, people who are, so to speak, science-minded, ask the question, is it possible, if I'm science-minded and I like the theories of science, whatever it may be, 
is it still possible for it to coexist with the concepts of God and religion? And the question over here is two elements. And why do I mean two elements? Because it's split into two parts. Number one, do we really need God? What do I mean by that? Years ago, before the Industrial Revolution, before science made its big way onto the globe and into the very details of our life, most of, of how our body worked, how the world worked, how atoms, neutrons, and all the wonderful things that exist in the universe, we had zero clue about. And the only way, there was one way to explain it, God made it, so therefore there's no other explanation for it. That was about it. At this point in our history, so to speak, in today's day and age in the 21st century, we almost figured out every single particle and atom. We have enough uh, uh, biologists and virologists and scientists and whatever you want to call it, all the ists that exist out there, with enough microscopes analyzing and superanalyzing and creating things that we never wanted, we never imagined, we never think are going to happen. Whatever you want to talk about that's there. So someone might say, what do I need God for? Why do I need that belief anymore? Seemingly, I got it all worked out. Then there's a second question. Is where is the evidence? Science is driven by the concept of evidence. A science-minded person accepts, can only accept things that can be empirically proven. By definition, if I can't prove it, either before or after, it's unscientific. And therefore the question would be, can a scientific person believe in God for that matter or believe in anything for that matter? And this is our two questions. So as I mentioned, this is a huge topic with many different parts and particles to it. But we're just going to talk about the overall structure of how it may be. So let's start with the first question. Do we need God today now that we understand seemingly almost everything about the universe? The main idea <clears throat> that we think that we understand everything about the universe, but we still need God. Because the difference between science and God is because it's never a conflict. They're two different tracks. They're two different ideas. What science talks about and what God is about is completely two different things. Science explores the universe while God is beyond the universe. God, uh, science explains what is while God explains why it is. So it's completely two different tracks, two different ideas. So if you ask why you need God, of course you need God, because science is telling me about the universe and God is about godly things, spiritual, as we can see over here. Let's just see text number seven, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. There is absolutely nothing in science, not in cosmology, nor in evolutionary biology or neuroscience, to suggest that the universe is bereft of meaning. Nor could there be, since the search of meaning has nothing to do with science and everything to do with religion. Imagine what it would take to explain to someone who has no conception of money what is involved in withdrawing cash from a dispensing machine. He might watch the process a thousand times, understand precisely the physical properties of the credit card and the dispensing machine, but still have no idea what has taken place. Explaining the transaction might include a history of division of labor, exchange, barter, origins of precious metals, currency, the shift from real to nominal value represented by the banknote, what a bank is, what deposits, withdrawals, credits, and so forth. There is an internal logic of the system. The laws of banking, 
But the meaning of the system lies elsewhere. And it can only be understood through someone's sense of a wider human context in which it is said the internal workings of the system do not explain the place of the system of human lives. The meaning of the system lies outside the system. Therefore, the meaning of the universe lies outside the universe. The same is true with science, whose subjects are in in, in interrelationship of things with the natural world. Nature is sublimely indifferent to whom we are and what we deserve. There is nothing moral about it. It carries no meaning with it. Science tells us the parts are related, but cannot tell you in totality what it means. So simply put, to the scientist, the scientist needs God even in the small percent of the universe that the scientist does understand. Because science only explains, as we just read, the physical, the observable, the measurable, what I can prove to you, so to speak. God provides values, meaning, and purpose. What do you want to say? No, I was going to say um, something that related to that. Uh, Scientist Rupert Sheldrake said, give us one free miracle and science can prove the rest. (laughs) There you go. Okay, here's just a cute video. Science and religion. Throughout the centuries, practitioners of both have clashed over perceived contradictions. But is there another way? One in which science and religion are not in competition for ultimate truth? Things together to see what they mean. 
and we need them both, the way we need the two hemispheres of the brain. One way of seeing the difference is to think about their relationship with time. Science looks for causes of events, and a cause always comes before its effect. How did the window break? Because I threw a stone at it. First came the throwing of the stone, then came the breaking of the window. Science looks back from effect to cause. However, human action is always looking forward. Why did I throw the stone? Because I wanted to wake someone who was asleep to warn them that the building next door is on fire. An action always seeks to bring about something in the future. Science takes things apart to see how they work. Religion puts things together to see what they need. Science may tell us how this universe works, but only divine wisdom and creativity can prompt us to write a life story filled with joy, creativity, purpose, and meaning. Which now leads us to our second question of this, what's the evidence of God, where is the evidence, I should say, for God's existence? Seemingly for a science-minded person, the only way to be certain that something does exist is either to be verified or to be falsified. Either it doesn't exist, or at the best, it's irrelevant. Can a scientist, so the question would be, can a scientist be a believer? For many, the answer was absolutely not. For example, and therefore you had a plethora of uh, atheist scientists like Richard Dawkins, who called himself a self-avowed atheist scientist. He once wrote, Science is based on verifiable evidence. Religious faith is not only lacks evidence, it's independence from evidence, and it's pride and joy shouted from the roofs. But for those who choose to believe, does it mean that they're going against everything science calls? And the answer is absolutely not. As we mentioned before, the lack of evidence is not problematic because God and science are on two different tracks. God and science are two different things. One requires tools to be able to prove for evidence. One requires tools and a microscope, and while one requires a soul and a mind. Dr. Francis Collins, as we'll soon see over here, who oversaw the International Human Genome Project, put it this way. He said as follows, text number eight. In my view, there is no conflict between a rigorous scientist and a person who believes in God, who takes a personal interest in each one of us. Science's domain is to explore nature. God's domain is to explore world, a realm not possible to explore with the tools and the language of science. It must be examined within the heart and mind and the soul, and the mind must find a way to embrace it, both realms. The God of the Bible is also the God of the genome, I think that's what we printed. He can be worshipped in the cathedral, in the laboratory. His creation is majestic, awesome, intricate, and beautiful. It cannot be at war with itself. Only we humans can start such battles, and only we can end them. Even more so, when we talk about it, if you want to put it in other words, science is the study of physics, which is also known as the law of nature. But who's the one that created those laws of physics? God. So therefore, God is not subject to the laws that he created because he was the one that created those laws. It's a whole different system needed to understand God, the one who created those laws. So what we discussed thus far is whether a scientist could believe in God. 
But I'll take it even a step further. In fact, if you're truly a scientist, it will enhance your belief in God. Because as an individual, what do you see? You're a simple person. You don't know the deep atoms and microatoms and how many limbs and sinews exist within the human body or the, in the world. But if you're a scientist, you're then able to observe, analyze, and see the awesome beauty and precision and the magnitude of God's creation. Only a scientist knows the billions of atoms that it took to be able to make the trillions of atoms that there's in the human being. Only a scientist knows what it takes for every leg to move, for every human being to be existent. So the more you analyze it from a scientific perspective, the more you'll come to appreciate and recognize the greatness of God. As in the words of Rabbi Cook, he says as follows, text number nine, with a recognition of existence comes an enduring recognition of the reverence of God. The persistence of the natural law tells us the wisdom of the greatness of the Creator. In the words of the prophet, lift up your eyes and see who created these. Therefore, it is fitting for every wise-hearted person to draw water to the reverence of the precision, precious springs of existence, for all of it expresses the honor of its creator. A scientist is able to realize and recognize when he looks at the mysteries of the universe and see, what are all these things? Look at all these beautiful things that God created. Things that the, maybe the regular person does not understand. Over here, the scientist would be able to get it and understand it better. In the words of a scientist, he puts it this way. At this moment, it seems, Robert Jastrow puts this, he was a uh, work for NASA, he was an astronomer. At this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientists who have lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and he pulls himself over the final rock. He is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. What the scientist comes to recognize, and what the theologian knew, what the believer had, he comes to recognize only later on. So what we see from over here, our question was, can we reconcile God with science? The answer is, God doesn't need to be reconciled with science because they work on different tracks. They're not incompatible. They're just the two entirely different subjects. And even more so, it may even complement each other by the more you know about it. We're going to go now to a completely different type of question. Why is Judaism seemingly so obsessed with idolatry? Is God jealous? You know the story of the fellow who somebody came over to him and he asked, asked this woman why she divorced her husband. She said, oh, we were always fighting about something. He says, me and my husband had different religious observances. He says, really? That's why you got divorced? He says, yeah, he thought he was God and I thought he wasn't. <laughs> if you open up the Torah, how many commandments do you think are about idolatry? Give a number. 53 commandments mention the concept of idolatry. That's about an eighth of all the commandments. Why so many commandments about idolatry? If you open up almost every single mitzvah has to do something, therefore you should not serve idols. Doesn't it seem like the Torah is a little bit obsessed about it? Even more so. In the Ten Commandments, there were two commandments that God told the Jewish people, he himself, before telling Moses what to tell the Jews. The first one he told them was, I am God, it took you out of Egypt. Okay. 
The second one is, don't take any other gods. What are you afraid of? If you're a great God, what are you afraid of? Why is God all of a sudden so overprotective and he has to mention idolatry so many times? Even more so. What does the, how do you call a Jew in Hebrew? Yehudi. What does it mean, a Yehudi? The Talmud says that the name Yehudi means someone, and that's why Mordechai was one of the first people called Ish Yehudi, somebody who repudiates idolatry. That means being called a Jew means you don't believe in idolatry. That's what it is. That's all what it is. Why is it all about idolatry? Now, of course, it's important. I don't want to undermine it. But it's, of course, it's important to believe in God. And, of course, we know that we should not have any other idols and so on and so forth. But why the obsession? It seems almost to say, if we can say, God forbid, is God jealous about people serving other gods? That's absurd. Well, presupposes there are other or you're even about still, but is God jealous about that? What do you? So that guy is talking foolishness. Big deal. On second thought, why is it so significant that there are no other gods? If God is such a great thing, all the merrier. Why do we have to believe in one God? What is that? What is the one God telling us? And perhaps, probably even more troubling is, in today's day and age. You don't see many people walking around with a little gold idol in their store or a gold idol that they're carrying with them or that they serve idols. Unless you're in India or in the Far East and in a lot of different places there, Hindus and Buddhists. But other than that, why are we so today in the 21st century? What does it have to do with idolatry? The Torah is relevant and pertinent for every time and every day and every age. So why then does the Torah have to tell us continuously about the laws of idolatry, 53 different mitzvot commandments about it, seemingly, is it relevant? And the answer in short in one word is, yes it is. Why? Because idolatry today is more rampant than it ever was before. It is everywhere in your life. Everywhere, even in places where you would never think of. And therefore, it is a good reason that the Torah reminds us even more than 53 times because its repeated warnings is telling us, look out. Look out. You have to look out in every single angle of your life. You can find idolatry. Starting with what the Talmud tells us in text number 11. The sages have taught us getting angry is tantamount to idolatry. Why is getting angry tantamount to idolatry? What's wrong? That sounds a little bit of extreme. Why can the person let off some frustration sometimes? What's the problem? And the first Chabad Rebbe tells us and tries to explain this seemingly radical statement from a story that happened with King David. King David, as you know, wasn't getting along with his son Avshalom. And Avshalom was running away. And ultimately, Avshalom tried to make a revolt against King David, which was unsuccessful. And King David had him on the run. While he was trying to capture him, King David chanced upon a fellow by the name of Shimi Ben-Gera. Shimi Ben-Gera was not the nicest guy, let's put it this way. And he started pelting stones and curses at King David. Mocking King David. Standing there while this was all happening, there was Yoav, Joab's which was King David's star general, younger brother, who were nephews of King David. His name was Avishai, who was one of King David's faithful lieutenants, and sees his king, he's commander-in-chief, 
being mocked and being pelted at, and he was about to take down this fellow Shimi ben Gera. And all of a sudden, King David turns to him and says, Hey, hold on there. Calm down. Don't get so angry for what he's saying. And look what he said in the book of Samuel, King David tells Avishai, text number 12a. Avishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why allow this dead dog to curse my lord, the king? Let me go over to his and take off his head. The king responded, What is it between me and you, sons of Zeruiah? Let him curse, for God has told him to curse David. Who then has the right to say, what, Why have you done so? What is King David telling him? Let him curse. What do you care? If he's cursing, that means it's coming from God. What was King David's profound message that he was importing and he was telling the Jewish people not only then, not only Avishai, but for every Jewish person. You see something bad happening? Don't destroy the messenger. Read the message. Who said just because he's doing it? It is not Shimi who is cursing me. It is God. Why are you getting upset at him? He's just merely a messenger. Do you really believe everything is from God? then why would you get upset? The Alter Rebbe explains why is anger tantamount to idolatry? Because the moment you're getting angry, ask yourself, why are you getting angry? This shouldn't have happened. I missed a plane, I missed a taxi, I missed a train. This guy started up with me, he fired me. Think about every scenario why you get angry. It's because you're blaming something on somebody. You're not recognizing one second. Take a step back. Why did it happen? Because God wanted it to happen, right? So why are you angry? That means that the moment you're getting angry is because you don't believe that God made it happen. What does it mean I don't believe that God made it happen? That's idolatry. That means you believe in other powers. That you believe other powers have, to be able, have the ability to control your life other than God. Because the very fact that it happened means it was supposed to happen. And if it was supposed to happen, then God made it happen. And then you have no reason to be getting angry. And you, didn't God want us to be angry then? No. So who made that happen? That's your reaction. You decide what should happen. You have freedom of choice. The very fact you got angry means that you don't believe that it was from God. The only reason why a person would get upset at some level is that they think that it wasn't supposed to happen to them. I wasn't supposed to miss my train. That person wasn't supposed to yell at me. That person wasn't supposed to be rude to me. That person wasn't supposed to fire me. Whatever it may be. If you want to take the argument even a step further. If someone else is standing, throwing stones and cursing you, you still may say there's still no reason to get angry at them. Yes, that person made a choice that was nasty. That person made a choice that was hurtful. And he or she may deserve punishment for the choices they made. But that has nothing to do with me. Let's put it this way. The very fact that that person's a bad guy has nothing to do with me. Doesn't mean that what I got, I didn't deserve. They didn't have to elect to be the messenger and they'll already have to meet out their reason that they decided to act this way. But the very fact that it happened to me 
That's because God wanted it to happen to me. If I am angry at that person, what am I doing? I'm angry at the messenger. Okay, you can, what's it going to help you? What you're saying is, I'm denying ultimately that God is in control because I'm saying this guy, this messenger, had control to decide to be able to hurt me or not or do something to me. What have you done? I made an idol. What was the problem of the people that made idols back 2,000, 3,000 years ago? They believed that these little creatures of stone had control of fire, of water, of rain, of sustenance, whatever it may be. The moment you, get, you start getting angry at your boss who fired you from your job, who decided to give you a pay cut or not to give you a pay raise, why are you getting angry? So you believe that it's your boss the only one that can give you a pay cut or a pay raise? So you believe that it's your boss who has control over you? Or do you believe that God has control? And if God gave you this job and he gave you sustenance until now, he will give you sustenance further also. Let's see it in the words of the Alter Rebbe. Our sages equate anger to idolatry. The reason for this is clear to those who have an understanding. Because the time of anger a person's faith is in God departs. For one, if one believed that what happened to him was the way of God's doing, he would not be angry at all. Granted a person with free will cursed or struck or caused damage to the property of the victim, and for their evil choice they are liable for punishment in court of law, as well in heavenly courts. Nevertheless, heaven has already decreed that this incident befall the person who was harmed, and God has many agents through whom he acts. This encapsulates when we talk about why idolatry is so central to the concept of Judaism. Because when we talk about it, every single aspect of our life, we come to the question and the crux of the issue is, do I or don't I believe in God? And if I believe in God, then I believe that effectively everything that happens to me is from God. And the moment I all of a sudden say, no, somebody else, I'm giving control to somebody else, all of a sudden, what am I doing? I'm creating an idol. I'm doing idolatry. There are many different ways how we can talk about idolatry, and it can come in all different types of forms. Every single person considers somebody else in their life, as so to speak, controlling them. And that's why we get upset. And that's why we get angry. And that's when we get enraged about somebody telling me what to do. We have to recognize that what we are and who we are and what we do, the Jewish belief system in itself, tells us that everything that happens is for a purpose, is for a reason. It's meant to happen. God wants it to happen. Why those people decide to be the messengers, that's a different story. That they'll have to deal with their creator about. But when it comes to you, recognize and learn from it. So if we go back to our question, why is Judaism obsessed? Again, it's from God. And therefore, if we're upset, who do we have to turn to? Recognize, why did God do this to me? And you ask God. But the anger, and that's why if you look, let's say, at Moses, whenever something happened to the Jewish people, even though he could have yelled at everybody that was there and blamed at them, what does he say? Why did God do such a thing? And that's why we have prayer. Exactly what you're saying. Because it gives me the opportunity to recognize and identify where is this event happening from. It is not because of the person. A guy hits me in the car or gives me whatever it may be. He happened to be an idiot. That's his problem. And I can go get damages from him. I can take him to court. I can get him a ticket, whatever it may be. 
But the question is anger. Think about when a person gets angry, what do they do? They say things, they act irrational, they say things irrational. Why? Because they're blaming that individual for everything that happened in their life. And that is idolatry. You're not, what well, I'm not rationalizing it. When something happens to you, when you can't really explain it, then you're trying to rationalize it. Because when I blame the other person, that's I'm rationalizing it. When I blame the other person, I say, he was a reckless driver, that's why he hit my car. And if you would only look where he's going, then he wouldn't say it. Right. If this person would only speak respectfully, recognize my talents, they wouldn't fire me. Right? So I'm rationalizing exactly what you're saying. Why this thing happened to me, saying that somebody else other than God is in control. So if that's more of a comfort, because a person wants to feel, okay, I, uh, you know, but that's a different story. That's between you and God. The moment, and this is the difference between, in general, a person should never tell somebody, let's say you see somebody else, lost a hundred dollars whatever you walk over there you know why you lost a hundred dollars because you didn't give charity a hundred dollars that you're not allowed to do that's not your business you have to ask yourself i lost a hundred dollars what did i do wrong that that's why i lost it yes that's nothing wrong that's because you have to make an introspection and an accounting and seeing what you did to be able to become better that's nothing wrong that's not called rationalizing we would call it introspection what did i do wrong how can i make it better but that's between you and god between you and yourself. You're not blaming anybody else. You're not giving the control to anybody else. Yes? But that's good information. If you say, I lost this money because I didn't give staka. Correct. Then give staka. But that's... You receive money. I'm 100%. But that you can tell yourself. You don't have the right to tell that to somebody else. Oh, no, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yes? I'm just saying the, the, the law works both Yeah, 100%. Very good question. Technically speaking, if we want to, um, step number one, yes. Step number two would be to understand that God is the old good giving God that we spoke about in the previous classes and everything God does has for a purpose, even though I don't understand it right now. I can be upset at God. Why is he giving me these challenges? Why is he giving me these tests? I want to just see the good and the kind part of God. Yes, but that's what we pray for every single day. And we ask God, don't give me these challenges and when I get them I'm upset but I'm focusing it to my upsetness at the one that's in control not at putting somebody else in control it's like when you get the food that doesn't taste good and yell at the waiter it's not the waiter's fault the waiter didn't make the food go to the kitchen and tell the chef you want more salt now I'm saying that's the idea as well when I'm when I'm yelling at the guy that hit my car why am I yelling at that guy he's just God's agent yes he should have been a better driver so he next time he doesn't God picks a different agent but at the end of the day the fact that your car got banged up is not that guy's fault it's because it was meant to happen for some reason why I don't know hopefully it doesn't happen hopefully I don't get those challenges but that's what we have to reality yeah. I, understand exactly. I understand what you're saying But the moment you get... And, and you, but you sit there and you just... It's like you can't sit there and say, 
Okay, so there's, so there's two points here. Nobody's saying you shouldn't do anything about it. That means if a person hits your car, we're not saying don't file an insurance claim against them. Because God meant it was supposed to happen, so therefore I shouldn't file a claim again. That's not what I'm saying. And then even the words of the Al-Tarebbe. You can go to court, get the punishment, deal with what you have to do. But don't allow that person who's annoying you, who's irking you, to control your life. Don't allow that person to say, don't think it's that person that's controlling you because the moment you say and you get angry at them, that means it's them that's controlling you. Them you're putting in control. You say, no, these people, I got to get bothered. I am getting annoyed. Let me think of how I can remove this annoyance. That means for some reason I am being annoyed. God's sending me a message here. Let's put it this way. What's the message you want? Either I have to remove myself from this situation or I have to be able to go find another situation, or because he wants me to educate that person. There can be a multitude of different options here that we can do to stop the annoyance. But the annoyer is not the one who you should be focusing your anger at. I understand that. that I, I get that part. But it's like sometimes, and I mean a lot of people do this, it's like the very passive person who will not get angry, but they'll take it inside themselves. Correct. But that's, but that's because they're instead of getting angry at the person, they're still thinking that that person's in control, but instead of expressing it, they're just keeping it within them. What we are saying it to... Ch- no, what I'm saying is to channel it completely different. Take that upsetness. Take that... Say, this guy's annoying me. Say, God, what do I need to do to be able to get myself rid of this challenge? Don't you have to do... Well, we have shuva. There's many different methods that we can do. Or whatever it may be. But what I'm saying is, instead of express yourself, on the contrary, don't keep it in. But don't express yourself against this individual. How do you express yourself? Then? You're sitting there and you're... So, for example, a person that irks you, a person that irks you, there's a prayer we say every single morning. It's in the morning blessings that God should avoid, help me get rid of any bad friends, bad neighbors, bad influences, and so on. And you can have that person in mind. Whatever you want. But that's at the same time, what my point is, my point is you are not allowing, and even mentally, not only I'm talking about from idolatry, mentally it is not helpful psychologically to allow people to give them rent-free space in your mind. That's a separate issue altogether. So therefore, when we have people that are annoying or things that happen to us in life, and I'm not saying this is easy, and therefore the Torah makes it so central because it's not easy, because it's so basic, because it's so difficult, and because it happens in every single part of our life, the first go-to reaction that we have is to get angry. Maimonides talks about this. Maimonides talks in his laws of behaviors. He says there are generally a person should never be an extreme. Like for example, he says, don't be extremely kindness, don't be extremely disciplined. You should always have a middle path. And he says, in order to get to the middle path, so let's say a person's extremely stingy, he should become extremely generous, and eventually he'll make it to the middle path. So the Maimonides says, what about a person who's extremely passive? Nothing faces him. He says, don't, excuse me, don't go to the opposite extreme to become always angry and then hope you'll get to the middle path. He says, anger and jealousy are the two things that a person, and lying, I'm saying anger and lying, are the two things that a person should go to the extreme to avoid it. Because the moment you allow a little bit in, today you get angry because... 
a guy hit your car, tomorrow it's because a shopping cart hit your car, the next day it's because somebody looked at you the wrong way, the next day because somebody almost looked at you the wrong way. And anger is what destructive, most destructive measure that Maimonides contains. And he says the same thing about lying. Today you lie about what you ate for dinner. Tomorrow you lie about what your income is the next day. And it becomes more of a personality. And therefore Maimonides talks about these things. And therefore we talk about anger, yes. And therefore he says, go far from it to the opposite extreme. And even in today, and when we talk about anger management, when people go through it, the same ideas, they tell them to become completely passive. As you'll never regret a time that you didn't get angry. I can guarantee you that. Mm-hmm. Let's go on now to our last question for today. Oops, let's just uh, summarize here. Why is Judaism so obsessed with, obsessed with idolatry? Is God jealous? And the answer is placing one trust in anything other than God, absolutely con- absolute control is the essence of idolatry. Our last question for today is, if I'm a spiritual person, do I need to follow the Torah system to have a relationship with God? And I get this question a lot in many different ways. Sometimes I meet some people and they say, you know, I'm not observant, I don't keep the commandments, I'm more of a spiritual person. And I try to ask them to explain to me what that means, what they smoke, what they drink, what they have. What does it mean you're a spiritual person without having God part of it? And it's a question which sometimes, you know, it's an interesting question that we're concluding our course with because we began with a similar question as well. But what does it really mean? So let's go back a little bit to the first Jew. And let's try to understand this in his relationship with God. And this way we'll better understand what this means. In lesson one, we spoke about the story of Abraham, how he went and destroyed his father's entire idol mart, and afterwards, he was thrown into the fire of Ur Kazdim, a town of idolaters. And if you want to call, Abraham was probably the first pioneer of his time to stand up against and make a revolution. Everybody in his time served idols. Everybody. The king was an idol. And he went and said, You guys are all making a mistake. And he went around changing the world. Let's see in text number 13a. After the mighty personage, after the mighty personage of Rome was weaned, he began to ponder deeply. Though he was a young child, he began to contemplate by day and by night. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. Rather, he was mirrored in Orkazdim's population of foolish idolaters. He would worship along with them, but his heart was busy analyzing everything and gained a clear understanding. Ultimately, he arrived and a true way and understood the path of righteousness through accurate comprehension, he realized that there was one God, created everything, and there was nothing other than God that exists. And this is where we come to the story of where the idolaters. So we have over here, Abraham destroys his father's idols. That was the beginning. He realizes that there's one God, and now what does he do? He doesn't only keep it for himself, he creates a revolution. He creates a revolution that he goes from place to place, town to town, hamlet to hamlet, converting people and telling them, listen here, guys, you made a mistake. And therefore, as we see in text number 13b, why Abraham used his recognition and the knowledge of the Creator to formulate a presentation for the population of Orkazdim, to debate them, informing them that he were not following the true path. Then he won over them. With the strength of his arguments, the king desired to execute him. His life was speared through a miracle, and he relocated in Haran. 
He then began a public campaign, loudly proclaiming to all of humanity, informing them of the universe, there is one God, and it's appropriate worship for him alone. He traveled to publicize this message after we were rallying people, city after city, kingdom after kingdom. When people would rally Tim, questioning him regarding his statements, he would explain to each individual according to their understanding. Until he brought that individuals back to the true path. Eventually, tens of thousands have rallied around him. Abraham, they were the folk to date in the Torah as the people of the house of Abraham, in whose hearts he firmly planted this great fundamental principle. Now, wow, what a story, what a resume. Here we have an individual who unilaterally discovered Judaism single-handedly, took upon himself to change civilization forever. He was the one that introduced monotheism for what it is today. Incredibly, however, none of the story is mentioned in the Torah. It's all Maimonides' history that he tells us about it. Nothing of it. Why isn't any of the story mentioned in the Torah? He was ten generations after Noah. He married his wife Sarai. That's what the Torah tells him. There was a guy. He was born. His name was Abraham. Married a woman by the name of Sarai. And all of a sudden what happens? God tells us this. Text number 14a. God said to Abraham... Go forth from your land and from your birthplace, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Do you know how old Abraham was at that point? 75 years old. You're talking about a person who changed the face of humanity forever. Taught the world about monotheism. Gave his life. There's not a word mentioned about it. The first thing, God told him to leave his parents home. And from there, we all of a sudden start to extrapolate and we learn more about this great personality. What happened to the entire backstory? Why doesn't it tell us about it? Why don't we tell? Why does it skip 75 years of his life until now? Even more so. You ever hear the Torah say a title about Abraham? Abraham, he was the greatest of all the great. It just says he'll be a father amongst the nations. That's when God changed his name. It never says Abraham, the righteous, the wholeheartedness, the beautiful. Noah, at 600 years old, 500 years old, God tells him to go build an ark. God says, Noah, was a righteous, he was great, he was wonderful, somebody unique in his generation. How come we don't find anything about that Abraham? All of a sudden, the first time we mention about him, all of a sudden it tells us that he told, God told him to leave his parents home. Because there's an important message that the Torah is telling us right here. Text number 14b, the Rebbe explains. The Torah emphasizes at the very beginning of the Jewish story is the narrative of Abraham. What makes a Jew? Abraham's uniqueness as a Jew, as his elevated status, stature, do not begin with his extraordinary qualities, with a closeness to God as he achieved through his own toil and efforts, but rather with what God said to Abraham, go forth. It begins with God setting Abraham apart. Abraham's relationship with the attachment in God was established through God's commanding him and its fulfillment of that command. In the first few chapters of Abraham's life, it was all something that he did on his own. It was his self-discovery. He began to lurk. He knew something. He was excited about it. He was passionate about it. He believed that it was the right thing. So therefore he decided to teach to everybody. But all those accomplishments was not God involved. It was all his own. The most important defining moment in Abraham's life was the very fact that God came over to him and told him, Go ahead, leave your parents' home, leave from where you were told to go. All of a sudden now, that made a 180-degree shift in his whole personality, in his whole relationship. 
instead of now becoming something which was self-motivated, something that he did on his own, making his own agenda, all of a sudden God got involved in this relationship. God told him, here, leave, go, do something. And now created a connection with God and made some type of relationship. What is a relationship? Think about it this way. You know, we spoke about doing things on your own achievement, but that's only once you're given directions. If you all of a sudden build a house and you're so excited about this beautiful house that you built and then you say, here, tell your spouse, come inside. Look at this beautiful house I built you. I didn't want the kitchen there, right? I didn't want the living room here, right? I wanted something up. Why? Because you didn't make the connection. You did something completely on your own. You never knew they wanted it. You never asked them if they wanted it. It was completely individualized. But the moment they mention, say, here, I'd like a kitchen, and then you make this beautiful structure, whatever it may be, then you made a relationship. You made a connection. This is the type of relationship where we are privileged for us. We are privileged to have. And not one that starts with our own decisions or our own epiphanies, whatever we decide to do. Think about it. If God tells me to do something, the moment God tells me to do it, automatically, every time I do it, I'm creating a relationship. Think about it this way. God is spiritual, I am physical. I am finite, God is infinite. God is selfish, I am selfish, God is selfless. How do the two of us even connect? How do we even have a relationship? Imagine a male and a female that have no relationship until they're introduced and have something in common. Imagine God and the human being. They're two opposites. They never work with each other. How can the human being even have a relationship with God? But the moment God says, hey, put on tefillin, give charity, keep Shabbos, light Shabbat candles, what does God say? Here, I'm giving you the tools of the relationship. So every mitzvah, the magic of the mitzvah is that God said, please, have a relationship with me. Come, welcoming you into my home. Let's build this together. That's what a mitzvah is. In the words of the Mishnah, it says, why did God give us so many commandments? Because God wants to give us so many opportunities to have a relationship with God. So you're not only one-track minded. The only way you can have a relationship, you bring me flowers. You can do this, you can do that, you can do this. But God says, here, you have the opportunities. So why do I have to observe the mitzvahs? Why do the mitzvahs are so important? Because God initiates the relationship. You can't have a relationship with God if God didn't initiate it. Because you're two opposites. You're polar opposites. You have nothing to do with each other. You don't even know the existence of it. How can I be spiritual if I don't know what spirituality is? Who tells me what spirituality is? God. And because God tells me what spirituality is, therefore I'm able to become spiritual. So the moment I do a mitzvah, I become spiritual. I become connected with God. I have a relationship with God. And that's what spirituality is. So the Torah is not a system. The Torah is a framework that contains 613 different types of ways, mediums, that I can create a relationship with God. The Torah gives me that ability to say, here, here's the address book. Pick this flower shop or that flower shop. How you want a relationship? You got all the tools in here. Spirituality, by definition, can only be done on the top-down of basis. I cannot just become spiritual because I decide 
Because then this person will have LSD, that one person will have marijuana. Every person will pick what they want to be able to get their own high. That's not a high. That's your own self-epiphany of what you decided you want to become spiritual. That has nothing to do with spirituality. Spirituality, by definition, is a godly thing. And the only time it can become godly is when God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, go from this place to that place. Until then, was Abraham doing wonderful things? Yeah, but did he have a relationship with God? Maybe yes, maybe not. So to answer our question, why do I need to follow the Torah system to have a relationship with God? Because doing a mitzvah allows us to accomplish that which is not possible to achieve through the human effort. It connects us with God. So just to conclude this course after six wonderful weeks of spending with you and going through lots of questions, I hope you all had an enjoyable time. And I'm sure you found some questions a little more explored than others. But just to finish off with two short stories. There's a story told about Rabbi Meir Shapiro. Lived in 1887 through 1933, was killed right before the war, <coughs> died right before the war, I think. Was the founder of the very well-known yeshiva called Chachme Lublin, of the very intelligent, he was one of the founders, the founder of the Daf Yomi, if you're familiar with that. And he was spent a significant time over trotting the globe, going different places to be able to fundraise for his school. He once arrived in a certain city and it was, was customary when the big rabbi comes to the city to invite him to come and give this great Talmudic talk in front of all the people. So he gets up there and all the scholars of the city sitting in the front row are spellbound by his unbelievable genius and lecture that he gave. And after the lecture, the scholars all huddled together in small groups talking about the genius and the discussions in the Talmudic text and analyzing what he said and what he did say. And all of a sudden... A fellow walks over to him and he says, Rabbi, to be honest, I didn't understand a thing you said. But here, I'd like to give you a donation for your yeshiva. And he gave him, the rabbi, a handsome check for his yeshiva. Rabbi Shapiro looks at him and says, thank you so much. And he says, I'll have you know that actually you're the only one that understood what I said. <laughs> After six weeks, it's probably fear to ask ourselves, did we understand? And there's only way that, one way to answer the question. It's not by giving a check, though. That's nice, too. <laughs> <laughs> we know that we truly learned about God, what God is, what God, why God has, why so many different type of relationships. But the question is, what does it have to do with me? How does it affect my life? If we only leave after these six weeks of with more intellectual knowledge then we missed the point. We're discussing theological ideas, but the point is that we have to bring the story home and make it relevant in every part of our life. Which brings me to the next story about the great Rabbi Nachamendel of Kotsk. Rabbi Nachamendel of Kotsk was a Hasidic master, was known for his wit and his wisdom. And once somebody came to his uh, yeshiva and wanted to be accepted as a student to the yeshiva. So he asked uh, Rabbi Nachamendel of Kotsk, he says, why do you want to ask the young student, why do you want to come to my yeshiva? So the man says, well, I seek God. So he says, if you seek God, then you can go home. God is there. God is here. God is everywhere. You don't have to come learn in my yeshiva if you want to just seeking God. So the young man turns to Rabbi Menachemendel of Kotsk and says, so dear Rebbe, so why do all the students come flocking here? What are they coming to study under you if God is everywhere? 
to which the Rebbe responded to him and says, those who come here don't come to seek God. They come here to find themselves. We may have registered and understood that we're going to come learn about God. But hopefully after what we learned today, you'll know more about yourself and how you can have a relationship with God. Here's a quick summary for today. Lesson six. Our relationship. What? We cannot see God with our physical eyes because He is not physical and has no form. Two, we are unable to perceive God because He wants us to put in our own effort to find Him. When we find God through our own efforts, the experience is transformative and enduring. Three, Science and religion aren't at odds with each other because they run on two different tracks. The former explains the what of creation. The latter provides the why. Four, God controls everything. Assuming that anything other than God has control over one's life or the world around us is a form of idolatry. Five, limits vote God's way of reaching out to us and allowing us to enter into a relationship with Him. Something that is impossible for finite humans to do on 